Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Here at A Better Peace, in addition to discussions of current events and security policy, we aim to introduce our audience to some of the most interesting new works of military history and social science. Today, we are pleased to welcome Professor Jay Lockenauer to discuss his new book, Dragon Slayer, The Legend of Eric Ludendorff in the Weimar Republic and the Third Reich from Cornell University Press. Eric Ludendorff is one of the most fascinating figures in German military history, a relentlessly driven officer who rose to general within the Imperial German Army, despite lacking an aristocratic background, Ludendorff helped plan and execute the signal early German victories of the First World War at Liège and Tannenberg in 1914. Then, as the power behind Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg, Ludendorff shaped German strategy and political life in the latter half of the war. After Germany's defeat in 1918, Ludendorff then became deeply involved in German nationalist movements, culminating in the Nazi Beer Hall Putsch in 1923 in Munich, where he collaborated with Hitler, marching with him through the city. Ludendorff never gained political power in the Weimar Republic or in the Third Reich and would have a falling out with Hitler, though his story shows the complex relationship between the military and politics in 20th century Germany a story that Professor Lockenauer tells with reference to Ludendorff's own voluminous writings in addition to the most up-to-date scholarship. Jay Lockenauer is a historian at Temple University specializing in the social and military history of Germany and Europe. In addition to Dragon Slayer, he is also the author of Soldiers as Citizens and the former host of the New Books in Military History podcast. He is currently studying the transnational history of the military and sports. Welcome to A Better Peace, Dr. Jay Lockenau. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for that uh, lovely introduction. Thanks, Ron. Happy to do it. So, Jay, what led you to this topic and to Ludendorff in particular? Well, like like a lot of good topics, it just sort of fell into my lap. Um, I had done some work as an undergrad on the Third Supreme Command, Ludendorff's collaboration with Hindenburg at the end of the First World War. And... Um, some uh, somebody who was working on an encyclopedia of anti-Semitism uh, got wind of that earlier work and asked me if I would write a uh, short encyclopedia entries on Eric Ludendorff, his second wife, Matilda, and their publishing company. And that just took me by surprise because while I knew a lot of, about Ludendorff, I thought, I knew nothing about his second wife uh, nor the existence of their publishing company. So it, just in exploring those uh, for those short pieces... Uh, turned me on to this this fascinating subject, an almost completely unknown uh, post-war history of Eric Ludendorff. Right. And um, what makes your book, uh, readers will know this once they get a chance to read it, which they should, but what makes your book different from a conventional biography? Yeah. So that was one of the mistakes I made was I thought I was just going to be able to write a biography of, mm-hmm. of Eric Ludendorff. And for a variety of reasons, that proved to be um, impossible and probably um, 
not necessary in the sense that we we already know a great deal about his his life during the war, especially. Um, there, the, the last English biography, uh, serious English biography, was done in the 1960s. Uh, a German biography appeared, I want to say, 2012 by Manfred Nebelin, mm-hmm. um, which is very good, ex- authoritative, I would say. On but like all the other work on Ludendorff, stops in 1918 mm-hmm. and just you know, references a flirtation with Hitler and, and ends it there. Um, and so this is a book that carries that story forward. Uh, revealing a great deal about Ludendorff, about German political culture, about the Third Reich. Right. Well, and and that's what I, I wanted to ask you based on uh, other scholarship, but also the, the way the work is, is that Ludendorff famously in the fall of or late summer and early fall of 1918, when he realizes the war is lost and he tells the Kaiser, we're going to have to ask for an armistice, that uh, the story is he had some kind of a nervous collapse. If Ludendorff had dropped dead, in September of 1918, what would the historical judgment about Erich Ludendorff be? Well, so ironically, I don't think it would be very different oh. because, in 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 the sense of the scholarship, he does drop dead or goes crazy, <laughs> disappears, you know, off a cliff in 19 in 1918. Mm-hmm. So, in some ways, I would say uh, it, the historical legacy wouldn't change as we know it now. I wouldn't have needed to write this book, uh, for one thing. It might be the only the only difference, but it's in fact the telling of that story that I find so fascinating. Yeah, well, that's where I wanted to go. Is that that so? You know, you're you're the first scholar to really go in depth into what happens after the war's over and what he does. Um, instead of treating it as sort of this embarrassing uh, last chapter in an old man's life, that you you actually find a way to link his past to his present. And so, well, first of all, I guess I think you've already hinted at this, right? The reason why people don't talk about his post-war career in any great detail. But what links do exist that, based on your study between his career before 1918 and his life after 1918? Well, what I discovered, especially when I read his writings, was that he spent the rest of his life telling the story of the First World War mm. and his role in it according to a very um, specific set of set of terms to, to help create, I argue, this legend around himself um, that he was this decisive, uh, brave, heroic a warrior who stormed the fortress at Liege, at Liege single-handedly, um, and then the operational genius who who won the terrific German victories uh, in on the Eastern Front, especially at Tannenberg and Poland, Galicia, other places uh, on the on the Eastern Front, and then who masterminded as the the Feldherr, as the the mastermind of of German strategy after 1916. Of course, he has the problem that he has to explain why Germany lost if he's <laughs> such a genius. Um, how did Germany manage to lose? And that's where again, where the second wife really comes in is with this idea of supranational powers, Jews, Freemasons, and for Ludendorff especially Catholics who were behind the scenes uh, controlling the world one way or another, sometimes fighting against each other, but always to the detriment of Germany, which, of course, in, you know, in a very kind of Nazi-sounding uh, rhetoric is racially superior. And and if if all things were equal, you know, if, if the world weren't run by this conspiracy, that Germans would, in fact, be on top. Right. I, I'm, I'm fascinated in the book that you emphasize how Ludendorff tells a story uh, similar to that of the great hero Siegfried, that he is completely invulnerable, except he's vulnerable in the back because Siegfried would never turn his back on an enemy. And so ultimately he's defeated when he is stabbed in the back. 
Right. Well, he's uh, his the Siegfried. We can talk more about Siegfried if you want. That's obviously <laughs> kind of a whole separate story. But Siegfried's vulnerability comes from a linden leaf that fell on his back while he was bathing in a dragon's blood. So, like Achilles being dipped in the river, um, he had that one vulnerable spot. Right. But you're right. As a as a, a mighty warrior, how would he ever get caught in the back? Well, and and this I think gets into this. Um, uh, the com- the complex thing to try to understand, you know, what was the the political uh, and intellectual world that Ludendorff ends up getting involved in after 1918, right? This this nationalism where the Nazis are one of many such political parties. Um, should we think of is is Ludendorff, you know, an OG uh, OG nationalist, um, and and where does where does his development there fit in with the, the rise of the Nazi Party in particular? Yeah, so Ludendorff, um, the the right wing in Germany after 1918 is a, is a very scary place, mm-hmm. and Ludendorff gradually, I think, over the course of several years, moves further and further into that radical uh, wing of the of German conservatism. Uh, he doesn't seem to have any patience for monarchism, for restoration of the monarchy. Um, he doesn't think very much of uh, mainstream conservative politicians, um, some of whom he associated with the Lost War. And so he he becomes radicalized by this idea and, and the appeal of the Nazis and other groups like him. He, he swims in this world. And what I argue is that he's, I want to really try to emphasize this because of the, the frequent and understandable focus on Hitler, is that until 1923, Ludendorff is the most important figure on the radical right wing of German politics, not Hitler. Mm-hmm. And um, Hitler's rising. Hitler tries to associate himself with Ludendorff at various moments, a kind of increasingly close relationship that culminates in 1923. Uh, in that beer hall putsch that you mentioned, mm-hmm. but uh, but it's Ludendorff that's the that's the star. It's Ludendorff is the reason that the trial gets covered in the papers, not so much Hitler, although people had heard of him. And and obviously the trial is the point at which uh, Hitler really makes his name and eclipses Ludendorff uh, pretty dramatically because of his testimony. Ludendorff's testimony was kind of sad. He he tried to disavow any involvement really in the planning of the putsch, and you know he was just happened to be going by basically was his excuse. And anyway, I. I love my country. And, and that was the finding of the judge, actually, is that even though Ludendorff was on trial for treason, just like Hitler was, he was uh, exonerated based on his um, peerless nationalist credentials. You know, whatever Ludendorff had in mind, it had to be for the good of Germany, basically, is what the, what the judge said. Wow. So he goes free. And yet, what would his role have been if the Beer Hall Putsch had succeeded in 1923, if the Nazis had taken over the government in Munich and, heck, they they had hoped to march on Berlin? Was the idea that Ludendorff would have been the leader of Germany? Well, so that's they never come down as clearly as that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's There's some thought that they would be a team, that's mm-hmm. kind of a tag team, that Hitler had the political sensibilities and that Ludendorff had both the respect of of the conservative of, of many conservatives, many na- other nationalists, and the military experience that would they would form a a uh, whatever the equivalent a two person triumvirate. Right? <laughs> <laughs> nice, a duo, a dynamic a duo, duo, a dynamic duo. Well, and and yet, so Hitler uh, so, uh, at the trial. Uh, after their failure of the putsch, and famously, right, that uh, Ludendorff of all of the marchers, right, when the police open fire, he apparently just keeps on marching and walks all the way through the police line, then turns around and realizes nobody is following him anymore. 
Well, and, and a police, like a captain of the police kind of gently taps him on the shoulder and says, excuse me, sir, would you, your excellence, would you mind very much coming with me? <laughs> and so he takes him to the station. But uh, that's the story anyway. Right. There's some people that would dispute that the veracity of that, but there are enough people who swear that that they saw it happen, right. that uh, I put it in the book. Well, and, and so then um, Ludendorff is exonerated. Hitler gets a, an absurdly light sentence of five years, but only serves nine months, but he does spend some time in jail. You describe how Ludendorff tries but fails to essentially take over the Nazi movement. Um, what happens to Ludendorff's plans to make something of himself as the leader of this movement? Well, I think I think just personally, he's too dogmatic. Um, he just doesn't have p- political sensibilities. I think I used that term before, but he's um, he's brusque. He demands absolute loyalty, and if people don't give it to him, um, then he sh- he shuts them out. And so he wasn't able to form a working alliance really with anybody else in the Nazi Party. Um, there were a couple of people that that formed the the leadership during that time mm-hmm. along with him, but, but he never developed any really close bonds, uh, to the, to those others. And so, and, and, and he was having to deal with, um, Hitler's already large and growing popularity within the, within the movement that he, Hitler really was becoming during that, that same period, the, the center of the, of the Nazi party. And then, Ludendorff then uh, shifts, or perhaps I don't know if it's a shift, but he he becomes increasingly involved in a larger, uh, let's say, intellectual project with his second wife Matilda. Um, and I would say that the, the one thing that people who haven't read this book or, or that when they read it they will discover is that there were people in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s that the Nazis thought were a little too out there uh, intellectually, and one of those people was. Matilda Ludendorff and and her husband. And what was their deal? Well, Matilda uh, ran in the same circles as the Nazis. And increasingly during 1922, 23, she would speak at gatherings where Nazis were also speaking um, about this um, philosophy that she had called Deutsche Gotterkenntnis, which is the, the Germanic understanding of God. And I, when I started with this project, I had a sincere my sincere intention was to try to explain this this philosophy of hers, and I just can't. I, it's <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of a neo pagan, um, you know, blood spirit religion. Um, the the name comes from the fact that according to her, and one of the one of the ways they would try to get out of charges of racism or anti semitism was they would say every race possesses, and by this they, she means Germans and. In, English, Anglo-Saxons, and they would use those kind of social Darwinist terms. Every race has an inherent uh, spirituality and that fulfillment, and she used terms like this too, freedom would uh, would come only uh, in accessing that that natural um, spirituality that is inherent in each race. And so they would, again, to avoid charges of racism, they would say, well, everyone has that, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But by following Christianity, Germans have become alienated from that inherent spirituality. Christianity to Matilda and to Eric um, was a Jewish fabrication. Mm. They, they had sampled some Hindu mystic documents and mixed them in with some Old Commandment stuff and, and some Old Testament stuff and and uh, and cooked up this religion to trick Europeans and especially Germans into into believing what is in essence uh, Judaism. <laughs> that's that's her 
suggestion. Right. And so they, they of course, weren't the only German uh, nationalists who embraced various forms of neo-paganism. And yet the Nazis were reluctant, even though the Nazis themselves flirted with neo-paganism and certainly had their problems with the churches. But the Nazis were never completely comfortable with embracing this approach. Why? Well, I think it's it's pragmatism mm -hmm. at, at the very least. I mean, who knows what Hitler actually believed right. in, in deep down inside, but um, he was politically uh, smart enough not to alienate uh, the the what eighty nine point nine nine percent of Germans who are you know church going Christians right. of one of one branch or another. So at the very least, people like Himmler and who who were more closely identified with the pagan side were kept on somewhat of a leash, at least in public, um, and at least for the earlier years. And Ludendorff in, would would have been in just for them an embarrassment mm -hmm. for that for that reason. Um, they really disliked Matilda. Goebbels writes about her in, in his diaries. Um, just can't stand her. And, and it, a lot of people who want to still respect Eric Ludendorff see Matilda as having corrupted him. It's, mm -hmm. it, she's to blame for her, all of his wackiness. And um, so it's the, the strong influence of a woman. Right. So they, they develop a, a team. Uh, 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 they work together as a team, really, where she fancies herself a, a philosopher and more and takes on the more spiritual side, is really kind of the head of this Deutsche Gotterkenntnis, the, the League for the Germanic Understanding of God, where um, Eric is the head of the Tannenberg League, and the two exist. It's almost hard to tell them apart at, at times, um, but Eric identifies more closely with the Tannenberg League, named for that famous battle in 1914. And, and Eric does. He was responsible. Right. And Eric maintains his connection or tries to maintain his connection to military circles, right? He's an advocate for preparedness. And the, the Wehrmacht tries to cultivate him as well. Is this true in the, in the years after the war? Correct. They, um, he's enormously well respected, again, especially in military circles, for his for his ideas. And so he would write frequently in um, in his a newspaper that he founded in the mid nineteen twenties about military affairs and strategy. And and my sense is that these things were read. Certainly, his publications were widely read and reviewed in military journals. The things like uh, Total Krieg, mm -hmm. the Total War book that came out in nineteen thirty five. So. So people, even if they couldn't stand to be around him, um, listened to what he had to say. Now, what's, what was remarkable to me was that so few of these people commented on the other wacky stuff that was always sprinkled in with his military writing, you know, about how Moltke the, the, young, the, Moltke the Younger was a Freemason, for example, that that was, uh, you know, uh, one of his theories. So this conspiracy that they, that they imagine is is I discovered at some point that it was kind of perfect because um, anti-Semitism was obviously w relatively widespread in in Germany and getting and getting worse, so that wasn't so unusual. Um, and most German Jews identified proudly as such, and so they were not hard to find. Same thing for Catholics, even though there had been persecution over the years, especially in Bavaria, Catholics are very proudly. Um, acknowledge the fact. So, if one of your enemies was identifiably Jewish or Catholic, you could you could tarnish them that way. If you couldn't obviously connect them with either of those backgrounds, then they were Freemasons. And Freemasons, if you don't like somebody, you know, then they're a Freemason. And Freemason is a secret society; Masonry is secret, so they won't tell you. So it's kind of the perfect dodge for you know labeling anybody you want an enemy. So that's and so for Ludendorff, then right he. Uh, he's constantly in this weird position of he does have, say, let's say, respectable 
supporters, but he he's serious about the conspiracy stuff. But his his uh, advocates or his supporters think they can be sort of cafeteria Ludendorffians and they can take the military stuff and leave the other stuff aside. Right. And the, it, the effort really picks up steam uh, after the death of Paul von Hindenburg, when mm-hmm. the military really starts to take an interest in Ludendorff as a kind of as symbolic of the old army, as a, as a shield almost between uh, Nazi, the Nazis and the army to prevent Nazi encroachment. The feeling is that he could fill that role that Hindenburg had filled during his life of sort of maintaining the independence of the army in the face of of national socialism. Mm-hmm. And, and yet Ludendorff only lives for, you know, so Hindenburg dies in 34, Ludendorff dies in 37. And yeah, how December. did the Germans, how does the German regime, both of the Wehrmacht, but also lar- the larger Nazi regime, how do they memorialize or use the memory of Ludendorff? So the, those efforts to kind of bring Ludendorff back into the military fold are marginally successful, I would say. He does make, when, uh, when Hitler uh, introduces conscription, when he introduces the Luftwaffe in 1935, um, Ludendorff makes some public statements in favor of of the move, saying, "Yes, Germany is finally uh, regaining some some of its strength." Uh, in exchange for which, some some of the restrictions on his organization were lifted by the Nazis. So, um, they were supposed to be allowed to circulate their literature on military bases, for example, after this this um, this accord w- was reached. But the relationship continued to be very fraught because Ludendorff was very touchy and, you know, the slightest little, little perceived insult drew his ire. And so he would, he would uh, charge back into the fray. Hmm. He had um, an associate named Robert Holtzman, who was kind of his, his um, representative in Berlin, who had frequent meetings with the military leadership and, and with Himmler as well, who remained a kind of f- fan of, of Ludendorff's and did what he could to, to try to, um, intercede on his behalf. So he had some high powered friends. Mm-hmm. And in general, right, you know, the, you know, the story of how you ended up writing this book in this way, you're dealing with an aspect of Ludendorff's career that is less understood. As a scholar of the of mil- military history, but also this concept of the military and society, how do you think your approach in this book um, can uh, enlighten sort of future work on the role of, say, military celebrities in the political lives of their countries? Well, for one thing, and this is uh, one of the manuscript reviewers actually kind of brought this to my attention, the extent to which I'm studying him as an author, mm-hmm. um, because partly because there are no typical archival papers associated with Ludendorff, very, very few. There are a, scattering, a smattering of them here and there. Um, so I ended up reading his enormous um, published works and Matilda's as, as well. So I'm studying him partly as an author, and that was that was helpful to conceive of it that way. Um, and the other part, oh, what what else can we what else can we learn? Um, it's it's really about me- about memory and legend making mm-hmm. in a political culture that the way it's so it you know I tell the story of these battles and I kind of summarize his military career but really focus on the elements that he latched onto and his followers and 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 supporters and critics alike the things that they latched onto from that story of the war so it's almost kind of on a meta level mil, mil, only on a meta level military history because it, it's it's relying on the memory and the story making uh, storytelling about that war. I'm trying to think when I was reading the book and now as we're sitting here talking, I'm trying to think leaving aside the content of Ludendorff's politics, um, as, as difficult as that is, 
can we think of another figure who that high high ranking, that famous, a military figure who turned into a public intellectual uh, or political advocate in his post-military career, either in Germany or any place else? Hmm. That, I can't. I mean, I can think of generals who ended up getting elected president. I could, but I can't think right. of somebody who, who would try to do what you know, um, what Ludendorff has Ludendorff tried to do. Yeah. And just this is a, isn't an answer to your question sorry, necessarily, but it's something I've said in this context before, which is that one of the difficulties of writing a biography of Ludendorff is it would be like trying to write a biography of Eisenhower if Eisenhower had invented Scientology. <laughs> Right. right. So that, because, yes. because he's got this, this incredibly important military career. There's so much work on that. Right. He's, he is this less well-known, but incredibly important political figure for 20 years after the war is over. Um, and then he invents a really, his wife invents a religion. A re- so it was yeah. a complex story. Complex story indeed. And, and a story that I think that people who are interested in, uh, the history of the German army, uh, Germany in the 20th century, um, and even the origins of national socialism will find very interesting and very complicated. Uh, it is, uh, it's definitely worth your time. I encourage my listeners out there to take a look at a copy of Dragon Slayer, the legend of Eric Ludendorff in the Weimar Republic in the Third Reich. And Jay Lockenauer, thanks so much for joining us here on A Better Peace to talk about. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Uh, please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send us suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you and you should subscribe to A Better Peace if you have not already. And after you subscribe to A Better Peace, please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice, which helps others to find us as well. We're always interested in broadening this community and hearing from you, and we look forward to welcoming you all again. But until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.com dot army war college dot edu and have a great day.